Okay, big episode, big, big episode, monumental, like top of the podium type monumental stuff. We had a Olympic medalist in figure skating, a three-time Olympic medalist in figure skating join us on the pod this week. His name is Eric Radford. He is a Canadian Paris figure skater. Uh, he skated with Megan Duhamel, and he's won one of each medal at various Olympic Games. Really interesting guy. Listen on as he takes us on a roadmap through his career, touching upon many different topics. I don't want to give it away, so take a listen. I'm your co-host, Ricky Liordi. I'm George Boutsalis. And let's, let's go. go. We like we did a little bit of research for like the last couple of days. We're like you know, got our first first big guest on, you know, famous <laughs> uh, famous Canadian Olympian. So we're like, let's do a little bit of research. So we're know, prepared that, for this. Yeah, one. yeah, yeah. We usually we just kind of wing it because we have like you know the last couple have been buddies. Um, one of them we have a buddy who's a doctor who came on, so we kind of did a little bit of homework for that because we didn't want to sound completely uneducated and stuff like that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, welcome to the show, oh, uh, Eric. It's, it's an honor to have you. You know, like we were talking about earlier, we big fans big olympic fans and you know people kind of know our stance on what we what uh what we think like you're at the pinnacle of sports and like you know accomplishments and all that stuff like you literally stand on the mountaintop of the sports world when you do that so really cool to have you and uh i don't know do you want to kind of jump into it and give us a little bit of background on how you got into how i got it? into skating yeah how you got into skating and kind of your journey there and stuff like that yeah for sure i mean so i'm from a, a small town called red lake ontario uh, more specifically, in an even smaller town called Bombertown. It's a small little uh, district up in northwestern Ontario. And uh, when I was younger, I was obsessed with flying. I wanted to be a pilot. And during the Olympics in 92 in Albertville, I saw figure skating on TV. And I was just enamored with it right away. Um, because it reminded me of flying, but I think also because it's one of the only sports done to music. And I didn't know it then, but music was going to play a big part in my life. And I think I was really attracted to that as well. And uh, from there, I just started trying to copy what I was seeing on the screen. And I, I would try and jump and turn in my living room. I, would, I still remember putting pillows <laughs> on the floor all around me and just jumping and turning as much as I could. And Did you um, sustain any injuries as a child doing this kind of thing? Cause, I remember like, like always being aware of like the TV stand and like scared to hit the TV, know, like, yeah. smash into it. But um and then I and then I did the same thing like on the ice. We had an outdoor rink pretty much across the street from us, and I was uh, in hockey skates at the time. I'd go and try and like jump and turn and glide on one foot. Um, and I think you know I kind of told my mom I was like I really want to learn to do that. You know what I saw on TV, and she put me in lessons, and it kind of just built from there. I was gonna ask how did you learn how to skate because. I grew up playing hockey, so my I remember learning how to skate. I had the little pole at the local community center. My mom's carrying me. My mom broke her femur oh God. teaching me and my brother how to skate. She was in a cast for eight months with a two-year-old and a four-year-old. Oh, wow. Like just devil child. Like nightmare. That's yeah. what we, nightmare. <laughs> so how did you learn how to skate? Well, I started in, I started in uh, the Can Skate program, which is run by, at the time it was called CFSA. Uh, the Canadian Figure Skating Association, okay. which is now called Skate Canada. And um, I was in their, like, learn to skate, can skate program. And um, 
at the time we had a coach that was from Edmonton that had moved up to Red Lake, I think in order to kind of take over the skating program. And I think she kind of saw that I had some talent and then she put me into private lessons. Um, and you know, it was there that I kind of learned the basics. And, uh, it was also, once I got into private lessons, I also started to, I got my first pair of figure skates, which were actually white skates that my dad painted black. <laughs> okay. So. And were you, a lot of times you hear about these Olympians and these great athletes that are just born with it. Were you born with it? Like, did you get on the ice and you were just noticeably better than everybody else? Or did you start off and you could barely skate and you worked hard, practice, practice, practice? So I, I have this conversation with like, you know, a lot of other athletes and skaters yeah. and, um, you know, like uh, Dylan and like Patrick Chan, we kind of talked about like w how we felt way back in the beginning and what it was that kind of propelled us a little faster than, you know, the, our, our friends and yeah, the yeah. other skaters. And I, I feel like I was always a very strong visual learner. If I saw something in a video, if I saw some like another skater, like an older skater doing something, I was really good at emulating it. And taking what I saw and building a feeling for it. And um, I was also in a ton of other sports. I was in gymnastics when I was younger, which I also look back and I think was a, a, a like one of the best things that my parents did was put me there. It gives you such great body awareness yeah. and balance. And that lends itself to like any other sport, you know? And it um, keeps you super fit. I was going to say like and the he, strength must yeah. help too, right? Because People like, underestimate. Especially you like in periods, like lifting someone up like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and flexibility. Yeah, too. yeah. Um, and so I, I think that uh, mechanism was what kind of propelled me uh, like maybe faster than other kids my age. Um, but for the most part, I mean, it was just hours of work. You yeah. know, there was it wasn't magic or anything. Yeah. It was it's early mornings, late nights. Exactly. And I just I loved it so much. You know, um, I wanted to skate more. And at that time we had I remember I used to skate three times a week, <laughs> Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Um, and of and course we were always fighting for ice with hockey. Yeah. What um, age or and what age was this that when you're like three times a week was, I was eight. Oh yeah. Wow, okay. Eight, nine, 10 yeah, yeah, yeah. until I, until I moved away. Actually, it was still three days a week. Okay. Yeah. And then eventually like, so it starts at three days a week, but then I'm guessing once it starts to get more serious and you got more into it, like I guess the high school, like, you know, middle school, high school training for Canadian stuff like that. I'm assuming it was more rigorous and a lot more. Yes. So when I was 13, I, I moved. I moved to Kenora, which is a three and a half hour drive away. It's right on the border of Manitoba yeah. uh, along the Trans-Canada. And um, I moved because I wanted more ice time, more competitive environment. I wanted better coaching. Um, and when I look back, it was pretty driven for a 12 year old. You know, like I, I told my mom that's what I wanted to do. And I told my parents and you know, they always supported me and they, um, my brother was a swimmer and during a swim meet, uh, my brother used to billet with this one family there and my parents connected with them and they said that they would, uh, uh, like do room and board for me. And, um, like that's how I was just going to ask, like when you're 12 years old, cause I played hockey, when you play in the OHL, you go billet with a family, but you're 16, 17. What was it like being 12 years old living with, without your mom and dad? I mean, I, I uh, thought... Well, sorry, it, was your brother with you as well? Or yeah, my, my, my brother, yeah. this. But actually, my brother moved away uh, to university the same year that I moved away to skate. And uh, 
I now that I look back, it was kind of crazy, you know, yeah, like, yeah, like so young old. and moving away. And I mean, they weren't that far away, right? They were just kind of like a three hour drive yeah. away if, if, there, if there was an emergency. You still see them on the weekends. I would go back on the weekends. Um, but I got insanely homesick, you yeah. know, like I used to, and my, my mom still will tell this story to people <laughs> and be like, you know, he, I would call my mom like crying and just being like, I'm, you know, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Yeah. And she's like, well, do you want to come home? And I'd be like, no. <laughs> so she kind of like keeps you focused when you're going through that tough time. She would, yeah. Like yeah. I, I would get really sad and I would just need to talk to them. Yeah. But I never wanted to go back, you know? So you were still focused like all that time. You knew that's what you wanted to do. And like. Even though when you get homesick, like once you spoke to your parents and you kind of re- like aligned your vision, you're like, okay, I can, I can do this. I can stick it through and, yes, and like you stay yeah, focused. Exactly. And another aspect to that particular move from Red Lake to Kenora, like my last year of elementary school, grade eight in Red Lake was probably one of the most difficult when it came to like bullying and, you know, just being made fun of for, for being different than everybody yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was in gymnastics and figure skating and. I remember this one girl was, she asked me, she was like, why does your mom treat you like a girl? And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, well, they, your parents put you in gymnastics and figure skating. And those are girl sports. And I was like, they didn't put me in them. I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I wish you can go back and talk to her now. Be like, Hey, look at me. <laughs> yeah. My gold medal. Yeah. I had a little bit of vindication. <laughs> yeah. What did that, did that drive you? Like, was that ever played a role? Like when you, once you started skating, getting more competitive, were you, did you, did that factor in the back of your mind saying, you know, I, this is my passion. I want to do this. Who are they to judge me or anything like that? Or was it you kind of paid no attention to it? How did you handle that stuff? I I didn't think about it too much. Like it never affected me wanting to to, to pursue skating. But I definitely was like very, very insecure. Um, I think looking back, I realized that I, I developed sort of like a social anxiety disorder. I didn't know what anxiety was back then. Like yeah. I just used to, you know, start to... Like I start to sweat, sweat profusely yeah. and, and she kind of shut down, shut down. Quiet, yeah. Exactly. And whenever I was like, when I used to walk down the hall at school, if I heard somebody laughing, I thought they I were thought laughing, laughing at yeah. me. Yeah. It was, it's tough when you're young because yeah. nowadays we're a little bit older. We can, our brains are developed. We understand what that is, right? We understand that. Okay. We're going through something, especially with the tools and the resources there are now, but you know, 15, 20 years ago, those resources didn't exist, no. right? People didn't understand what, you know, mental health disorders and illness. So I can only imagine being 12, 13 years old by yourself in a different city without your loved ones closest to you. Like that must've been tough. Yeah, it was tough. But I mean, I always had skating Yeah, and I also had a, I had a great group of friends at skating and, um, and then the other thing I realized is I also had my music, you know, I would, I could go and, um, I always maintained uh, and continued my piano lessons as I moved throughout my my teenage years and throughout my career. And uh, of course, in that moment, I didn't really think about it that much. But looking back, I could go and sit at the piano, and the world would melt away. And it was kind of I mean? yeah. just like therapy, and I didn't even realize it, it. It's funny you say that because we've been talking. We did a couple episodes about mental health, and we said find something that brings you back to you that you can go to that one place or do that one thing and the world shuts off while you're doing that. For me, it's the gym. That's my, my one thing to you. You have skating and music. music yeah. So it's funny that you touch upon that because we were literally yeah. talking about that maybe a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And, and one thing too, I was telling you earlier that my background, I grew up, uh, music was a big, honestly a big part of my life, but kind of around like middle school, high school. Um, 
part of my curriculum is I, th- I take an instrument and I started playing the clarinet, which I absolutely hated. Like I, was <laughs> I played tra- the clarinet. Come so, on. So, yeah. so my, well, my reason is probably different. My dad convinced me. So as a Greek background, the clarinet's a big Greek instrument. So it? great. Yeah. It's in a lot of Greek music. So, you know, my parents are very like, we're like, you know, the proud Greek families so are like, you know, you got to play the clarinet. It's a Greek instrument. I honestly felt like such a dork playing it, but honestly, <laughs> you know, learning that, taking that first instrument, from that I ended up segueing. Like I played, I think, the saxophone a little bit. Then I transitioned to drums, and then eventually my into uh, like I DJed after and produced music, like I said. But I always found, even from a young age, like to your point, even for myself, I find that music like it can change your mood so drastically. Like such a little thing, you can kind of associate a feeling to it or an emotion. You know, you're having a bad day or something stressful. I can play a specific type of genre, a song that'll uh, like bring out a certain feeling in it and it is an escape for a lot of people which is um that's what i found at least in my experience and it you know kind of draws that emotion out and everything yeah it's exactly that yeah um another like another small part of like me moving away and i always uh i kind of i'm always talking to my friends about it again is along with having that sort of a like kind of natural athletic ability i always had this innate urge that i wanted to have a a big life. I, I don't know how to put it into words. Like I always knew that I wanted my life to take place within the world, okay. that I was never going to be a small town person or yeah. even just a city person. And, you know, I, ha- I know friends that they have rarely left Red Lake. Uh, I have some friends that they left for school and then they were drawn back. back, you know, and I always knew that that wasn't going to be for me. And yeah, I just, and I, I remember, um, walking down my street one day and feeling claustrophobic outside on the street and just feeling like I was you gotta get stuck, out. you yeah, know? Yeah. And then I don't know where that came from. It was just, it was just always there. And I think that was another sort of driving force to, that allowed me to kind of take that leap and be like, yeah, I want to get out of here. Along with, it was almost like a chance to escape Red Lake. Yeah. And I, and I remember uh, when I moved to Kenora, I, took it as a chance to recreate myself and this plays this this uh play like uh, plays out like a lot further along the like my career and my storyline but uh, I used to speak with a lisp and of course that was another thing that everybody made fun of me for and that summer I taught myself to speak without it like I just practiced because I didn't, didn't want to like any speech class, nothing like that. No, no way. I just, so this is like, before YouTube tutorials probably. Yeah. Yeah. And my brother used to kind of make fun of me too. And be like, why do you speak like that? It's not. And so I used to just practice going and I just practiced and I taught myself to speak without it. Cause I didn't want to get to this new place and have a lisp and have people making fun of me for it. And, um, I also became hyper aware of my mannerisms and, um, with like, and I, I remember like with the, with combined with like that social anxiety, like being in class and just sitting very still. And I remember one instance where if I ever started to get like excited and not pay attention, my mannerisms would kind of show through and they're like, you know, they were just different. They're probably more feminine. And yeah, yeah. I remember this, uh, yeah, it was like the bully in school who sat right behind me in religion class. And he'd be like, Eric, you know, sometimes you act like a girl. And I remember like, it was like an arrow in my Tense heart. Up, you know yeah. what I mean? And I was just like, I instantly froze. And it was like a, a slap in the face being like, rem- like, remember you can't let it go. Or you can't forget about it. And I am realizing now when I look back, like that has carried on for a long time. Like I've, 
probably just in the last couple of years been aware of how much of that I carried with me, of how much I have been hyper aware of how yeah. I carry myself. And it kind of makes me wonder that if I was in an environment where I wasn't afraid to be myself, how I would have Yeah, how life would have been now, different, you know? Yeah. So you're saying that so. time, like, you had to be, you were consciously more alert of, like, how you acted because you didn't want to get off those, like, quote-unquote, act like a girl kind of thing. You yes. wanted to be more aware and kind of put on that false front, whatever, to kind yeah. of conform and, and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. And I was, like, always, like, the less I give away about everything, the less opportunity there is for somebody to make fun of me. Okay. But you know what? The more you talk, the more I realize that you were born to be like a winner, a champion, right? You you think about this. You're 12 years old going out to pursue what you knew was your, I, I don't want to say destiny, but essentially it was. And you're so much farther ahead than probably kids your age back in the day. Like I think when I was 12, 13 years old, I was a hockey player. I played AAA hockey. Friday nights, I didn't want to go to practice. I wanted to hang out with my friends. And... That's why I didn't make it anywhere, right? I was not a, a winner. But the fact that you were so aware, you you had that work ethic, that drive, like that's really what sets the difference between athletes that don't make it and athletes that go on to big things. Yeah. Honestly, like it, it is, it, you know, it obviously must have been tough at the time to deal with it, but to be able to persevere and put that, like, put that noise kind of behind you, like that is honestly pretty impressive. So dealing with all of that adversity coming up and then still pursuing your passion and not deviating from, or not, sorry, like staying true to yourself and, and want to do that. I mean, it very commendable. And it's, you know, again, we were talking about this before about kind of that identity crisis thing where, you know, one of the reasons we started this podcast is because like, you know, in your teens and your twenties, anybody goes through it. Anyone who says they don't is probably lying to themselves and to anybody else. Cause trying to like block noise out and stay true to yourself is very hard, especially in today's society. I feel like it's probably getting a little bit more um, acceptable to be who you are today than it was probably back when, when you're coming up. But honestly, kudos to you because that is, uh, must've been kind of like, there must've been those days where like, it's really you start to then question yourself and second guess yourself. It's like, is this what I should be doing or, you know, stuff like that. So yeah, exactly. I, really I want to go. So now we, we've kind of touched 12, 13. So now you're, you're in your teens. You know, you're good. Like you've got to know that you're, noticeably better than your peers and some of the people you're training with take us to i guess 16 17 18 so from kenora i ended up moving every year of high school uh grade nine i was in kenora then i moved to winnipeg uh grade 10 uh montreal grade 11 and then i end up in toronto uh and grade 12 in oac that was the last year of oac yeah yeah um each year i always wanted the same thing more coaching uh more competitive environment more competition and I used to I used to receive this like skating magazine in the mail and I would see like the junior national team and the senior national team. And I was like, that's where I want to be. I don't want to be in the because there's two different streams in in uh, skating. There's like the competitive and then there's the, the sort of recreational. And I wanted to be in the competitive. But we had like no education about it. Like my when my mom was trying to figure out like what competitive was, she had to like call the CFSA and ask like, what is the difference? There's no Google probably wasn't even around. Yeah. Like Like we didn't even, we didn't dial up internet. (laughs) Um, and it wasn't until another sort of like big turning point was when I arrived in Montreal and I had originally moved to Montreal, uh, with one specific coach and she wanted me to go into ice dance. So in skating, there's, uh, singles pairs in ice dance and pairs is like, with the throws and the lifts and what I do now yeah. in ice dance is uh, just the edges and the skating and there's no jumps or throws or anything like that. Is it kind of like synchro similar to that? Or? Uh, no, no. Oh. It, it's, it's just like, it's like almost like uh, like ballroom dancing on ice. Okay. It's what uh, Tessa Virtue and Scott Moyer do. Okay. And um, 
I remember going down there and it felt like another big opportunity to go to a bigger training center in Montreal. But I made it very clear that I didn't want to give up my singles. I still wanted to go. I wanted to know how far I could go in singles before I veered off into pairs or dance. Um, but after some time, I kind of felt like the coach was like I was training like five hours a day of dance. And then I would go and try and skate like another hour or two in singles. And I was already exhausted and it was becoming super imbalanced. Mm -hmm. And we were skating in a rink that had two uh Pads. pads of ice and on the other side was a pad with a pair school and with a coach named Paul Wirtz and I had read about him in that magazine and I all the skaters I had seen in the magazine too because oh. they were like junior national champions novice national champions and I would just remember during my breaks I would go and I would sit up there like in the corner and I would just watch them and I was like I was like wow they were so good they were doing like big jumps and throws and um after two and a half weeks, I was uh, billeting with one of his skaters and they invited me to like a cottage or whatever. And um, I got to like meet all of them. And uh, one of the, the girls was like, well, why don't you just come and skate with us? Like if you like to do jumps and stuff, like you should come and skate here. And I didn't even really think it was an option. And that was when like that was a very big when I go back, like that was a turning point, a turning point that definitely led me to the success that I had because I would if I go back over all of my coaches Paul was probably one of the most influential and like integral coaches that shaped who I am not only as a skater my style of skating but maybe into the competitor that I am and he was probably the scariest most difficult like coach like was he very like very militant like was had his yes. ways he was very yes. well respected yeah and like he was he would yell at you he there's crazy stories that he would not be able to coach the way he did now with yeah. all of the awareness of yeah yeah what's going on with like abuse in sport like but it literally made me a strong competitor he he would push you past what you believed like he, what you thought you could do, he would push you past it. Like one time he made me do a, like a clean long program. And at this point I was just getting my triple jumps. So these are, it's not easy to yeah, do. Yeah. And I would be on the ice for like three hours, you know? And if I didn't get it done, I would come back after school and he'd be like, okay, you still cool need again. to do that clean program. And it would feel impossible. But then you would make yourself do it. Like there's no other like magical solution it literally just and he would always kind of pit us against one of another like you were always going through it with somebody else yeah. and that that feel like that almost despair of like this is impossible i can't do this and then you do it and then you become stronger you know yeah. what i mean it's like you're 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 uh what's the it's like that grit and that um you're kind of like pushing past the breaking point and like almost like there's a term that a guy uses, this guy David Goggins, about like callousing your mind almost, where you think you have a limitation and you push past it, and then that's the new limit, and then there's a new exactly. Limit. It, yeah. it just it makes you feel like bigger and stronger, yeah, you know, somehow yeah. as a competitor, and that also like plays into like real life and like your character yeah. and everything as well. But yeah, when I when I look back, like he is the one that's you know shaped that aspect of everything, and um, he ended up he moved to Toronto that following year, which is why I moved to Toronto which I preferred because going to school in Montreal was incredibly difficult because I didn't speak French, French and yeah. I had to take French and that was maybe even more <laughs> difficult yeah. than like, 
and by yourself, new skating. school, yeah. speaking a different language. Yeah, it was it was really hard. Um, but and then it was with him where I like I started to get all my triple jumps, and I was like, oh wow, like I can I, do this. I could I could be really good. You yeah. know, like it really started to. And that was my first time going to a, a, a national championships in uh, novice. So in uh, skating, there's four levels of the competitive. There's pre novice, novice, junior, senior, seniors what you see at the Olympics yeah. and the world championships. Okay. And I w- became the novice men's champion with him. Wow. And, um, you know, that was like wow. a, a whole new like league and level, you yeah. know, where it, things were really starting to like, I don't know, come together. And my, I don't know, my dreams were slowly becoming more of a reality. Like yeah. it was like, okay, maybe this is really going to lead somewhere. I can do this. Yeah. So did you believe when you were training with him and he started to push you to those points where you're like, okay, I, I didn't think I could do this. Now I can do it. When you're going to those competitions to compete for world, like the novice titles and all that, what do you remember what your mindset was? Were you like, yes, I put the work in, I can do this. Or did you still have some reservations being like, this is my first time. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. So that's what he did. He like training with him was so difficult that when you got to competition, that was easy. Because you only had to go out there and do a 20 or 30 minute practice where you didn't have to do a run through. And then you had to do one program where sometimes he'd make you do like back to back programs or one time he made me do 300 of the same spin over and over again. 300? It took me like three hours. It's called a camel change camel because (laughs) it was really crappy back then. (laughs) Camel change camel? Yeah. Like my and what exactly? Back. Do you want to explain? Like I've so, honestly, I have no idea what I, that the, would mean. The like. cam, the camel position in figure skating is kind of like an arabesque, where you bend your upper body forward and you lift your leg, so okay. you're in okay, the shape yeah. of like a T, and then you spin. Okay, and then, that is yeah. So yeah, yeah. you start on for a camel change. Camel is I started on my left foot, and then I switched to the right foot, and you have to be very, um, like, uh, like kind of sensitive with your, um, with like the push and with the edge because it's very easy to kind of. Uh, like lose your edge and then you lose all your speed okay after i did 300 of them he was like okay this is a test you have to go and do one if you don't do it good you're going to do 300 more (laughs) i've never been so terrified (laughs) but you that's one of those moments where it's like you just have to make it happen there's there's no other option exactly and i did it and i didn't have to do 300 more thank god um and you feel that like so and then going to him like he brought that out of you so even when it was hard, you felt like you started to really appreciate it as it went on that kind of tough coaching and that kind of pushed you to your limits. Like you could appreciate the value he was bringing to you that in that moment. And and that's where you felt the result was when you got to a competition and he had a, his skill was to take probably like not the most talented skater and push them past the level you would ever expect. Like I saw a lot of skaters that like came through the school who, when they first got there, like, I would have never imagined them winning a national medal or making a national team or competing internationally. And he brought them there, you know? So you think like, is so I guess this Paul, he's that good. Like he's that good of a coach that he can kind of take you. I'm assuming you have to have some sort of skill and the athletic abilities, but he could really like, you know, I guess like what's the term like polish, like, you know, bring a turn a diamond from heat or stone, whatever. He could really like push you to become that champion to a certain degree. Okay. So that was where his his strength was in those levels where you where you where all you really need is just like repetition. He always struggled with senior level skaters because when you start skating senior, you you can't skate for somebody else. You know, you have to do it for yourself. Yeah. You can't be told what to do. You can't have somebody like 
speaking down to you. Your relationship as a senior skater with the coach is more level. You're working together and yeah. it's kind of as a team. You yeah. know what I mean? Like helping refine you more. It's, like it's more supporting. Yeah. Like the coach supporting and lifting you up. And he was more still like on top, on top of, of you, you looking down, you know, trying to yeah, yeah. get you cool. to do it. The way you were, were uh, talk about the relationship with your coach it reminds me of being in like high school where you have that teacher that always checked your homework, made sure you did it every day and you hated that teacher. But then you come to the exam at the end of the year and you absolutely crush it because you did the work all year long. Yes. Yeah. Like I had so many of those. That's but the one biggest thing too. And I, and I mean, I can't speak from, from that standpoint, but a lot of stuff too is like going even back to your point about like coaching today and how people have to be, you know, it's more like the kid gloves approach, you know, for myself, like the coaches that I thrived under best were the ones obviously who, who were very well versed and very good in their field. But like I grew up playing baseball and soccer and, and my baseball coach, I had one guy who was really tough, but like he'd put you through repetitions and you do all this stuff that you thought was not relevant, but it would translate. And it's almost today, I don't see it as much. I'm not in the supporting world as much anymore, but it feels like there's, you can't really do that as much and push people because then it's like that. You're like, well, I can't handle this. It's stressful and all that stuff. But then, you know, that's, you're not really finding out what your limits are and, and all that. So it's, I'm, I don't know what it's like in the Olympic world. Obviously I'm not in that space, but is it changing at all? Is it, is it still, there's still those coaches that are known for, Pushing people to their limits, whether reputation in the in, in the skating world, or yes, I think I think nowadays in North America there's like a greater awareness of of that and that it's not the right way to do things. But I would say uh, you know in countries like China and Russia, like that's still I think the militant style, yeah. pretty much comp- normal. Yeah. Going you know until you I mean? can't and, go anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, going back to the, the the competition aspect where. Um, you know, competition was always easy and he, you would get the result. And I remember standing on top of the podium, uh, that first time when I won that novice competition and you're thinking, on top of the world and thinking it was all worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And it was hard. I had never been pushed like that, you know? And then I stood there and I was like, it was all worth it. And that was a big sort of epiphany because yeah, it yeah. made moving forward and going like when I got to that difficult moment again, and then I got to imagine that feeling of standing on the podium. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to, of course I'm going to do this. Yeah. Because I know. I know, I know that it's put worth in the it. work and I'm going to get to that next level. Yeah. So at that point, that's what kind of, and then from then on, is that what kept you going? Like once you were in the novice, I'm guessing it was probably still hard, but you would always kind of go back to that place of like what it felt like to stand on the podium. Was that your, how you rationalize kind of pushing yourself farther? I have part of it. Yeah. Part of it was that. And another thing that I'm, I'm just realizing that, I, I had ever since I was a kid is an innate drive to be the best. I wanted to be mentality. I wanted to be the first in line. I wanted to get the highest marks when I lose at a game. It can even be like monopoly or <laughs> euchre. It doesn't game matter. Cards, like yeah. I, I almost like physically feel the strong disappointment in my heart, you yeah. know, like, and Megan actually used to make fun of me all the time because she she'd always be like, you can always tell when Eric's losing because he's super quiet. He doesn't yeah. say gonna ask, Are you a sore loser? I would probably say yes. I think that okay, my I'm sorry, would your friends define you as a sore loser? As I was a teenager, <laughs> yes. Yes. When I was a teenager, yes. I think now I'm a now it's bit, a little bit more a little like more a case, a little trivial yeah. or whatever, but yeah. You're but, the kind of like, if you're losing a monopoly, you're like, All right, screw this, I'm out of here. Yeah, like, yeah, 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 exactly. I had, I had a hard time dealing with that. So like, I think a combination of those two things of wanting to win because it just feels so good. And I just always wanted to continue until I was the best. Yeah. yeah. And that kept kind of driving you. So then, so then after you won that first novice one, like 
going on that, and then so I'm going to ask because I obviously don't know. So then after novice, you said it goes junior. Novice junior. So then when do you make that jump? Is it by age or by skill level? Is it like it's part uh, partly by age and partly by skill level. Okay. So there's there's actually no age limit in novice. You you could you could be 32 in novice, oh, but no. in junior, you have uh, 18 for singles and 21 for pairs for boys. And I think 18 and 18 for girls. So is the minimum age is the, or the maximum. maximum age. Maximum. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. So you, so that's why you tend to try to get into junior as soon as possible. Usually when you're like 13, 14, 15, yeah, yeah. so that you have enough, uh, you have as many years as possible because there's a whole junior circuit that you can go out on. And there's like the junior world championships. Yeah. Um, so, and I was a little bit of a late bloomer, you know, I, I won that novice title when I was 16 Wow. So in singles, I really only had two more years of Juniors, eligibility yeah. in junior. Um, and uh, I think the following year in junior, I was fifth. And then I won the junior title in singles. And the year before that, I also started pairs. And I think that was Paul's plan all along. He kind of saw me that he was going to, that I was going to be a pair skater. Okay. And I mean, I, I'm six foot two. I kind of have a build more for pairs. Uh, single skaters are not usually this tall. And um, the same year that I won the junior national title, I won the novice pair title with okay. my my first uh, skating partner, Sarah Burke. And um, so, sorry to cut you off. So yeah. I think my brother went to prom with Sarah Burke. No really? Way. I think yeah. Like, cause my well, that's when I mentioned your name. He's like, oh, I know him. I'm like, how do you know him? He's like, oh, just friends with Sarah. I was like, all right, small world. Now you mentioned, I was like, okay, that's crazy. No yeah. That's actually really a very small, small world. world. Yeah, yeah <laughs> very small. World. So I wanted to ask the. How do you, like, when you get a partner, does your coach set you up? Is there, like, a meet and greet, or is it, no, you're pairing, that's it? Like, there's uh, yeah, got to be some sort yeah. of chemistry, right? It's, it's usually, like, the coaches who have sort of a bird's-eye view of the skaters, or um, they might be at the national championships watching, like, the, the ladies' singles events and kind of see somebody who might be really, like, have the proper sort of physique for pairs or might be interested in it, and then you do a tryout. So... You know, you take a, a couple sessions and you'll do like stroking patterns. You kind of see how your skating matches, how the line matches. And then you might try a few of the elements and off ice lifts and stuff. And then you'd sit down and have a meeting and say, okay, this is what this we're going to do. This works or it doesn't work. Yeah. 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 And uh, Paul moved to the cricket club and Sarah was already skating there. And then Sarah started skating with Paul. So, I mean, it was all natural fit. It was already kind of, yeah. you know, we were already, everything was set up for us to skate together. Were you... Not, I don't know if disappointed is the right word, but was your priority at that time still to make it in singles? And were you kind of like bummed when you kind of saw that he was steering it that way? Or did you think, you know what, new opportunity, like I'm I'm open to it? For a while, it was kind of more singles. And then pairs was kind of the extra. Okay. Um, and then that slowly began to shift. And then eventually it completely shifted when... I realized that I was never going to be able to do like a consistent triple axel and a quad, which is what you're going to need to be one of the top uh, like men's single skaters. Yeah. And I mean, and I really enjoyed pairs. It was, it was fun to go through that whole process, the competition process with another person. You get to express differently. You know, you have two people, you can tell a different type of story. And in pairs, there's so many different types of elements in singles. You do jump, 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 jump footwork and um spins 
So and less like there's not much uh, core, I guess less choreography involved or what is that? There's not... a, there's the equal amounts of choreography, okay. but in pairs you have like death spirals, a ton of different types of lifts, throws, side-by-side jumps, the twist. Like Plus there's... on top of the stuff that you would do in a singles too, but you're doing a choreographed yeah. with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I always liked Paris, so I, I found it really fun. And eventually I kind of hit that limit. And what I'm really happy that I did is I, I made sure I wanted to go as far in singles as I possibly could so that when I stopped, I felt complete with yeah, it. I didn't no want to have any regrets or anything. And, and yeah. I did that. And I was, I did senior men one year. I came 15th at nationals and I was like, okay, I think that's, that's my limit. Now yeah. I'm going to let that go and just concentrate on pairs. So now that you've kind of retired from singles, you're into pairs, take us from that, that next level. Cause that's where I guess the big leap happened. I guess you were maybe what, 17, 18. Yes. I was, uh, 18 and I was skating with, uh, my second partner at the time. Her name is Rachel. And we made our first, or we made our first national team. We came fifth in Canada. So the top five in each discipline makes the senior national team. Uh, that comes with funding. Uh, that comes with, uh, like you go to like a national team camp where, you kind of present your programs. You just get more like exposure and uh, stuff like that. We did our first senior international together. Um, the thing was with her, she was 13 when we started and the minimum age is 14 for junior. So when I aged, when she was finally old enough, I had just aged out of junior. Oh. So we could only go senior. So we were stuck for a year, okay. not being able to kind of really compete anywhere. Um but we had a we had a lot of success. We were on the national team for for two full years, and um, but because she was so young, when she got to be I think fifteen or sixteen, she had a massive growth spurt, and it was kind of it changed she, a lot. It kind of showed that this isn't going to be long term. And um, we also were in a little bit of a limbo. Um, Paul passed away from cancer in two thousand and six. And we ended up uh, training in Detroit for a while, but we never had a full-time pair coach. We always skated with somebody who was more of a singles coach who could kind of teach us pairs. And um, we decided that we like really needed, or I decided I really needed a pair coach. And that's how I eventually moved to Montreal. Okay. And then, and then when you went to Montreal, who was the coach that you came on with, with there? So my coach there was Richard Gauthier, who coached uh, Sounds so familiar. Jamie Soleil and David Peltier, who won the gold in 2002 during okay. that big scandal. They were world that champions was the, in 2001. The, 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 like the, the, the judge. judge. Yeah, yeah. See, yeah, I know that name sounds familiar. And I, maybe I'm just like imagining it, but I, I think I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, was that and they were supposed were they the ones that were supposed to to win that one or is how? Yeah, I mean. <laughs> well, that, that's the one that's okay, up for debate, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. So they were the world champions going in. Yeah, there was a huge rivalry with, with them between uh, between them and the Russians, uh, and it's so hard yeah, to say. Yeah, like the it's... Russians made a little mistake. Jamie and David were perfectly clean. It's yeah, yeah. really. I mean, yeah. people will debate well, we that for the rest saying. of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? we get what you're saying. <laughs> do you find? And actually, on that note, do you want to be here? Pull it a little closer. Sure. Can. Yeah, just slightly. It'll slide there. Yeah. Okay. Um, the voting system in uh in figure skating is it typically like it's it's always spot on is there sometimes like is it subjective is there errors often oh, or is it completely subjective I was just <laughs> gonna say, well you're given a score a maximum score dependent on how tough your your program is correct so it, i mean there used to be the 6.0 system and now there's a new system which is um uh it's like a 
code of points system. So each individual element has its value. Uh, when the skater does it, it's put it into a computer system, and then the judges give it a, uh, a grade of execution from now it's plus five to minus five, but it used to be plus three to minus three up until the last Olympics. And so it's then, a ten point swing instead of a six point swing now. Yes. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. And um, and then you have five different uh, categories of sort of like artistic impression, which are all scored out of ten, and then both of those are uh, factored in different ways from the short program to the long program, and then you get a score. So there's technically no ceiling to there is no perfect score anymore. It's kind of wow. just you can score as high yeah, yeah. as you as you want. That's interesting too, because I, I saw I was honest. I was watching your your routine because I I read that, and correct me if I'm wrong. You're the you're the first pairs to land a triple lutz in synchronization. Is that correct? Am I getting that yes. right? Yeah, that's so right. So then I was trying to find it on YouTube because so He's got a big smile on his no, face. No, no, right because now. actually, and, I, and it's funny. No I know deal. my cousin's gonna listen to this because my my cousin actually skates for um, I believe it's called Nexice. Oh, Nexice. Just, cool. Yeah, Nexice. She does uh, she does synchro figure skating. Oh, so cool. she just competed and. I think her team is like one of the top in, in Canada, ranked yes. six in the world right now. Yeah. So she's giving me like all these things, like you know this and that or whatever. So I'm trying to get up to speed. But I was watching one of your one of your performances. And I think it was from the last Olympics. And as I've seen the score, I think it was like showed the difficulty or something, and it was going up. It was like started at 32 point something, and then it was like 50 something, and then I saw that the German couple had, or the German partner pairs had like 86, and your score was getting closer to that because I was wondering like why are they so low? Doesn't make any sense. Are they like penalized for this and? Yeah, so that's why I was. Yeah, exactly, and that's um, that little like score counter. That's how it works. Is after each element, it kind of shows you the technical score as it goes up, and then the Germans, uh, like that's it shows like the leader. Yeah, yeah. The current leader. Yeah. Um, we were also the first team to do a throw quad at the Olympics. I read that as well, yeah. but I had no. I wanted to ask because what is like what's a throw quad? So like there's. I was just gonna take a stab at it. So is that when you <laughs> release? She does a quadruple spin. And then lands. And lands, right? yes. Okay. Yeah. When you, throw, the you literally first, throw the first girl. to ever do that. Yes. That's friggin' crazy. I, I the, can't even There was a Chinese the Chinese team at the Salt Lake City Games, like during the big judging scandal. They went for it. They went for a throw quad, and she almost landed, and she slipped off her blade. So on. they were really, really close, but then Megan and I were the first ones to. Were actually you watching that it. and saying, "I'm gonna do this, Megan. We're gonna do this, and we're gonna win." You mean? The Salt Lake games? Yeah, yeah. Like, were you watching that spin saying, we're going to do this? Oh, you... no. I had, at that point in 2002, I had, I hadn't even started skating Paris oh, yet. You were, yeah, you weren't with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't. Is that, so when you, now we're kind of jumping a little farther ahead from your knowledge things, but like, just on that thing, what was going through your head? Like, cause I'm obviously you practicing it, but are you nervous? Like, you're in front of the world stage. Like, what are your, what's going through your head when you're about to pull this off? <sighs> what's so funny about and we'll, maybe we'll talk about this a bit later but sure you spend so much time like fantasizing and imagining being at the olympics and then when you're there and you're in the moment you, you're putting all of your energy in pretending that you're not there pretend you're on your home rink that you're just back at home and that's something that megan and i always said to one another before we got into our starting position i'm like we're just back at home yeah, doing yeah. another run through you try to keep it as simple and easy as possible and it's a fine balance between re like relinquishing complete control and then being just enough in control and aware that you something stupid doesn't happen like you just have to and it's always sort of like it's like a wave you know you're kind of riding a wave and 
as we came around for the throw quad, it had been working really well in practice. It was probably at its most consistent it ever was in our entire career. But really, you just hope, you know? And you, I'm not really thinking anything except a couple keywords, technical keywords. And what's funny is like, after we landed it, I, I didn't even have a split second of... of you can't cheer. You can't get excited, so yeah. It was just like, nope. Like, I still have so still much left finish. to do. Yeah. And then it wasn't kind of until after that it was like, whoa. We did this. Like we did That's got to be the hardest part, right? Because you're doing it and you're probably, like, I'm guessing you're thinking like, holy shit, I just did that. But you have to still do the rest of your routine, yeah. right? You don't really get to yeah. that. So talking about the kind of this idea that, you know, you have to, sh the show must go on. So I, obviously we were Googling and doing some research and I saw the video clip of you when you broke your nose mid-competition. Oh, Take me through that. Like <laughs> how, like... We always you used to watch videos of hockey players taking a puck to the face. They go down, they get off the ice, they come back out. You see, you know, soccer players, they get a nudge, yeah. they go down, and they're down for time. Nobody usually identifies figure skaters as the tough guys, but you broke your nose mid competition and finished the routine. I think you finished seventh. Yeah. Take tell me the story. So. I guess for listeners, I'll explain what this move is, and it's called a triple twist. And it's when the, the man throws the girl up into the air by the hips. She has to turn three times, and then she has to open up on the third rotation, and you have to catch her on the hips. And she normally has her arms kind of above her head, and then you place her back down. So it's like an assisted throw, and you have to catch her. Are you catching from the back, from like the front? You face we, each we, other? We're facing each okay. other. We're, I have, we're backed like her back is uh, we're facing the same direction as we go in and then we're facing one another on the way out. Okay. Okay. And so this was our first world championships in Moscow. This is 2011, right? 2011. Okay. And it's our first element in the short program. So my very first You're element ever in my first world championships, <laughs> um, it didn't get the, it didn't, we had a little bit of a mistiming. It didn't go as high as it normally did. And Megan's elbow like knocked me right in the nose. And this, and this is kind of common. Like it, it happens. I, yeah. I think I don't know a single pair guy that hasn't been knocked in the nose. Maybe not as bad as having their nose broken, <laughs> and, but right early on yeah. in the competition, like it happens. So we do that. And this has happened before. Right. So I put it down and I was like, Oh, that hurt. <laughs> and that's then, all you thought that hurt. But <laughs> the first signal that something was really wrong was Megan's face. Like <laughs> she was looking at my nose and, and she had like panic. her eyes were wide open. Yeah. And I was like, uh Oh, and then I kind of noticed out of my peripheral vision that blood, I could see my nose. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, crooked? yeah, like Sorry, I don't mean to laugh. But that's crazy. <laughs> and then it started to hurt a bit more. Like I, of course I had adrenaline going, but the next element was a side by side triple X. So it's super important. And my eyes started to water from the pain. And I just remember going into it and I, my eyes were all blurry. Like I couldn't see properly. And I remember thinking, this isn't fair. Like I have to go and do this. And <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I'm I like blind see. right now. Yeah. And we, we kind of, we didn't do a perfect one, but it was pretty good. And then as we came around for the lift, Megan was like, should we stop? But I just didn't say anything because in figure skating at that time, the, the rules were a little bit uh, iffy at that time. Now there's a rule that if you stop, you get a five point deduction right away. Okay. And, and you get like the current score you're at from that rating system, less five? Yes, okay. minus five. So, and if there's ever something that's dangerous, like if your lace ever comes undone, there's a referee that's watching the competition and can stop the music if they think that it's well, a dangerous to health. Yeah. You know? 
So we went into the lift and like, it goes right in front of the judges. And at this point there's like, every time blood I turn everywhere. my head a little bit, there's just oh, blood flying everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, if the music's going <laughs> to stop, then they'll stop it. Okay. But I'm just going to like keep on going. Yeah. And so we finished the program and I just remember like, it was just such a funny feeling because you're, you know, expressing and you have like this pain ex- uh, expression on your face <laughs> and you're looking at the judges and I could even see on They're some like of the wincing. judges' faces were kind of like <laughs> squinting a little bit more, like looking and I could see the blood flying everywhere and I could feel it on my face. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I was going to say, cause you've obviously, when you're training with someone, you're probably with that person, I don't know, six, seven days a week, four or five hours a day. Yeah. So that look on her face you're probably like, like shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like I knew it was literally like, her face. This is not good. Told me something was really wrong. So we hit the ending position and then I kind of like, I felt like a little like dizzy, you know, maybe I was like slightly concussed somehow and vulnerable to the face. <laughs> yeah. And then we like, we kind of like bow and I'm skating over to the side and I see, uh, the, the doctors there right away. And, I can see everybody kind of looking right at my nose and we get our marks and everything. And right away it was in the kiss and cry. And I remember thinking, I was like, Oh God damn it. I think they're going to have to put it back into place. Oh, you know, which I've, I've heard like, that's <laughs> yeah. super painful. And I was just like, there's no, I just even thinking about that gave me like, Oh, I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I didn't have to go and do any press. They brought me right into like the room. There was a rest. I know why you there. were sorry. I know why he was laughing. I apologize. Like, and we, continue your story. Yeah. Yeah, we, I, he we'll, had a we'll broke, jump in on, yeah. on a funny story. Yeah, I had to put his continue. nose back in place for him one time. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. Well, continue well, you tell yours yeah. and he'll tell you what happened after. <laughs> Mine wasn't necessarily a, a winner's move. Mine was... Yeah. Well, yeah, at least you were competing <laughs> in a... In so did they reset yours like there? Yeah, so we, I was in the medical room and there's our Canadian doctor and then there was all these Russian doctors and they came up and they're like, we're going to have like the best maxillofacial specialist come in and see you. He's going to be here in an hour. And my doctor kind of just came in nonchalantly and was like, no, 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 we're just going to put it back into place right now. And so she just came up to me and she was like, this is probably going to hurt a lot. Are you ready? <laughs> Bite and down. She, and I was like, she's like, do you want me to let you know what I'm going to do? And it's like, yes, I don't want her to just try and surprise me. And I remember she's like, okay, one, two, three. And it went like snap, snap, snap. I remember oh. kind of feeling going crunch, crunch, crunch. Oh, and I just yelled. Yeah. Like I, I was imagining if somebody was outside, they probably thought like I was dying. Yeah. And I could kind of feel like I could still couldn't really breathe. And she's like, I think we need to do a bit more. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, Oh God. Okay. <laughs> and so then it went like snap, snap, pop. And then I could feel like my oh, sinus yeah. kind of open and I could breathe again. Oh, yeah. Man, I... So that was just yeah. awful. <laughs> and can, can you ask, how did you score in that routine? So we scored like 57, which was for us at the time, a really strong score. Nice. It was a great skate. We were in seventh place and, uh, Imagine you know, people that lots of really behind cool. you. Though. It's like this guy just broke his nose and still beat us. Yeah. <laughs> but lots of really cool stuff happened. Like um, it was like I was that night in bed. I was watching like Russian television and I was like on their news. I was back at the restaurant and this very official looking guy came up to me and he was like, you're the Canadian that broke your nose. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, our president had very good things to say about you. Oh, come on. Putin was there watching the competition. He really loves figure skating. Jeez. And, um, then I was, I've, there was all these sporting magazines and stuff and all these like crazy photos. So it was actually pretty cool. And I think that Don Cherry gave me a shout out to just being like this tough figure. Yeah. Yeah. Tough Canadian, tough Canadian guy. It's exactly what I'm saying. Right. Like people, you identify hockey players as being the tough, you know, they, they get a puck in the face and they'll, they'll get out the next shift. 
figure skaters, you don't typically think about that, but you literally broke your nose and finished your program or, you know, in hockey terms, yeah. you finished your shift. Whereas that doesn't happen. Yeah. And that's like the definition of tough guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny too. Cause we were even talking until that point of like how, like the tough and fitness and physical aspect we have, we were recorded one yesterday with, like I said, Ricky's girlfriend was on. We we're talking about how like, you know, just getting out being physical, but like anything can be physical. People don't realize like we were joking about badminton is, is like a, you know, you can, it, if you work hard enough and try enough, it can be physical. So I'm assuming like, you know, people say that this might not be the most tough physical Olympic sport. I mean, I'm doing those 300 spins, like you said, and all those routines, like it must take a toll on you. So you kind of like, it toughens you up over time, whatever. And, yeah, and I guess sure. because mentally you knew you had to go through that routine, you just kind of stuck it out and powered through, right? So, yeah. That's still crazy. Breaking a nose and skating. So let's go yeah. on to the 2014. What happened to your nose though? Yeah. Oh, so <laughs> this is a stupid, stupid yeah, story. This is, so <laughs> Ricky, let me like preface this. So we've traveled a lot. We went to a music festival. The story takes place in Zurich, Switzerland, at a, at a music festival, open air. And Ricky, mind you, Ricky has I, a tendency when he's out partying to like remove his shirt and just like jump around like a hooligan. But I'll let you tell the story. So we're we're in this festival called Open Air in Zurich, and we're having a good time. We're a couple drinks deep, more than a couple drinks deep. So George is going to the bar to get a drink. I'm in the middle of this mosh pit, like Diplo or someone's playing. We're having a good time. And I'm, again, shirts off, and you know we're in this mosh pit. We're pushing people around. I see a guy with a pinata. So I go to grab the pinata. I put it down on the floor. A guy goes to kick the pinata and just swipes my nose oh, with his God. shin. Boots him like in the like, face. I'm just like, I felt it. And I'm just like, and I'm tarpless. And I was, I was even bigger like a couple of years ago. So I'm tarpless, like just veins everywhere, blood dripping everywhere. And I'm like, you kick me in the face. And he's like, no, I punched this guy. And I've never punched someone in my entire life in the face. Punch this guy. His buddy's like, no, no, man, it's not him. It's not him. I'm, it's you. Boom. <laughs> so I'm like, I, I got to get out of here. I got to find my friend. So he comes. I'm at the bar. He comes over to me and he's like, dude, is my face okay? I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, what is wrong with your nose? He's like, some dude just kicked me in the face. I was like, I was like, okay. I'm like, again, we drank. So I was like, I think I can fix it. I was like, let's do a shot at tequila first. So we do a shot and I'm like, oh, okay, shit. I'm going to count the three. And like, I try to do the thing you see in movies and I'm pretty sure it didn't work because <laughs> like I try to wrench it. And he's like, is it better? I was like, I think you're fine. And it's still kind of crooked. <laughs> we went back to the, uh, when we got back to our hotel that night, I just remember how, like ordering room service. So I'm like, can we just get a bag, a massive bag of ice? So they bring like the room service and I put it on. I wake up in the morning and my nose is just, I had a big nose to start. My nose was just huge. <laughs> like, and, like I didn't have size. black eyes or anything. It's just, my nose was just insanely swollen but yeah i was uh Such was a a funny, that was so a i got it fixed eventually but <laughs> yeah um but yeah back to uh, i want to talk about the 2014 olympics because yeah. i've said this before i think olympians are the coolest people in the world <laughs> just being there representing your country i'm i've never been good enough to do anything to represent my country but i would imagine it's the coolest thing ever so you you realize you made it you're in 2014 give us the story like you're you get off the plane you land Sochi, twenty fourteen. What's it feel like? Um, electric. If I was, and I, I remember like getting off the plane. We got like into our our um, like our residence. Uh, residence, yeah. yeah. And uh, in Sochi, the residences, the, the residences were uh, kind of far away from the cafeteria, and all the different houses they had like different bikes. So you'd have to get a bike and kind of bike over to the cafeteria. And we just went to kind of go and check everything out. And the team figure skating was the only one of the only events that was happening before the opening ceremonies. So we were there pretty early. So it was really dead. It was really like that calm before the storm. 
And um, another interesting thing about Sochi is that the, the climate was so like temperate there that you didn't really feel like you're at the Winter Olympics. It was very different. Similar to like like how Vancouver is. Like, yes. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like coastal on the water. And um, and I remember a moment very vividly. We were biking back from there. And I did, we like Megan and I looked at each other and we were like, we're here. Yeah. Like it's all about to happen. And just feeling literally like electricity in my entire body. And I remember Megan said, she's like, I already want to do this again. Yeah. Before we even had started. Before you even started. You know? And yeah. That was that was the moment. Yeah. That moment where you're always just imagining when you're finally there and feeling it. And it, it was. It truly was amazing and electric. So all that, like, I mean, even, like, electric, it must be an emotion, like, a little bit emotional because, you know, going back to the point when you were a kid, when you were 8, 9, 10, 11, you knew you wanted to figure skate, dealing with all those hardships, all that adversity, going to, like, living in, like, billeting and all of that, traveling to different countries, high school. All of that, like, does it hit you at once or does it take time? Like, did you just come with a wave of emotion as soon as you land there? Or is it when you first hit the ice? Like, When we first get on the ice, like when you first step on the ice and you see the Olympic rings. And I think both Megan and I, we just took a moment to just skate around and just take it all in. Enjoy you know? it, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And and again, it's funny because at our first Olympics, it's it was even more difficult to sort of balance the like uh, pretending that we weren't at the Olympics, you know, the like pressure, yeah. it was really, it was just so like stimulating and everywhere you looked like you were just kind of um, like aware of what was happening. Yeah. Whereas at my second Olympics, I was really in my own bubble a lot more. Um, but it was also a little bit different because when Megan and I first started skating at the beginning of when we first started skating, our goal was to make it to the Olympics. And then by the time we got there, we were already like two or three time Canadian champions. Yeah. And then we had just won our first world medal the year before. So it had kind of shifted from making it to maybe getting a medal. Yeah. You know, so it wasn't as like, uh, I think sometimes like in curling, it comes down to like that last game, you know, and for in figure skating is a little bit more predictable because we were already Canadian champions. It was kind of like, okay, well, we're probably going to make it. Yeah. So but when you actually arrive there, it does, it really does kind of hit you. Yeah. And that first time, like, you get on the ice, you're skating around, like, I, obviously you just touched on this, but I can't even fathom what that's like. But then you're going through your routine. Again, you put all that practice in, nothing, like, you're in your zone, you know what's going on, or how did you do in your, <clears throat> excuse me, how did you do on your first routine? Did you score well? Did you? So it was a kind of a strange Olympics. So this was the first Olympics where they had the team event at figure skating and it was all kind of experimental. We didn't really know how it was going to work. Um, and we, you, what we could do in the, uh, the, in the team event, you were allowed to sub in two teams or skaters. So Megan and I knew that we were going to do the short program and Dylan, my best friend got to do the long program, which was super cool. And, uh, we competed before the opening ceremonies and, what was really special about it is I had composed our short program music that year as, wow. as a tribute to Paul and oh, the music wow. was called tribute. And we went out and we had an amazing skate, clean skate. We hit the triple Let's's, hit the throw. We had all of our teammates sitting in the kiss and cry area. And it was like the Olympic moment yeah, that I yeah. always dreamed of. I'm you so know? jealous. Right now. Just thinking about it. I'm just like, Oh my God, I wish I was this good at something. <laughs> <laughs> I need to find a, a way to, 
I, you might be past your prime now, buddy. <laughs> I'm way, I can't. We can attend the Olympics. Curling. Curling. I'm going I'm to attend. It's funny you say that. We actually have a frat brother. So we went to, both went to Western. Uh, you know John Morrison? The yeah. Olympic, he's our frat brother. Oh, no way. He came. We actually we were talking about this on the, on the podcast a couple of episodes ago. He, uh, one of our, another frat brother of ours got married recently uh, in September, September this year. In London, yeah. John Morrison came back to London. He brought his two Olympic gold medals to the wedding. And like we had never, I'd never seen Olympic gold medal. It was like the coolest thing. But he just carries them like so nonchalantly in, like shows all the boys. I was like, dude, like those are Olympic gold medals. Like I would probably should my, keep them in a safe I or would something. Have mine locked up, like in a glass display <laughs> case, like lasers everywhere. Oh, yeah. If somebody even touches the glass, nine one one is on speed. <laughs> well, um, sorry, I, I was gonna say. So you guys, you guys won the silver in that Olympics, correct? Yes. You get on the podium. Again, what's it like? I'm I'm living through through your memory right it's, now. It's it, it's amazing. It's it's probably like, you know how sometimes, you know they always say like the fantasy is better than reality, but it's one of those ones where, the reality is better than you could have imagined. Oh my god! I'm so you know. Yeah, to your point too. Like you said, you're you're super competitive. So, in that moment, does as any thought go through your mind? Sorry, are you thinking I can't believe I did this? I'm so happy. Or are you ever thinking at any point? shit, I, we could have worked a little harder and had the gold. Like, does that cross your mind at all? Or is it just like your first one, you're so elated to be there? Um, definitely just really happy with it. And you and, and in skating, again, it, there is a bit of like, uh, that bit of like, um, uh, like pre- predictableness. Okay. I don't know what the proper word would be. Like, we knew that the Russian team was extremely strong and it was going to take something like for one of them to make a big mistake yeah. in order for us to win okay. the gold, in order for us to pass them. So, so there's not many in curling, uh, figure skating, there's not many upsets. Like, is it typically, or like the kind of the best top three, top four, top five, you kind of would you, know. You usually, you would usually know like the top five. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, anything can happen, of for course. Sure. But you like tend to have an idea. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You, you tend to have an idea of who the potential, who has the potential to be on the podium okay. or which skaters have the potential. But I mean, I had an Olympic medal in my yeah, hands. Yeah, crazy. Nobody could take that away from me. And, you know, that was amazing. And it was also like a, a learning experience because we had this amazing high. And then we had one day of practice and then the pairs were the first uh, discipline to compete in the individual event. So it, we, I had to like bring myself well, yeah, back yeah, down yeah. and prepare to go through. Like another... I'm not done yet. I got to exactly. keep going. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you know, that takes that, that's a, a skill in yeah. its own to really re reset your, yeah. your state of being from like finishing a competition and then having to restart again right away. And um, we had a, a decent short program in our individual event and then uh, we had a, a a couple shaky things and one big miss in the long program and then we ended up in seventh which we were pretty disappointed about and I remember leaving that Olympics feeling numb it's like the excitement of winning the silver with the disappointment of coming seventh leveled out and left me in the middle oh, somewhere wow. where I was kind of like you weren't disappointed you weren't happy yeah exactly I was just kind of okay well yeah that was that's it. It was strange, yeah. you know. Do you think if you like, so what? What did you miss on that when you scored seventh? What's the move that you missed that you think was made the? We missed though? a side by side jump, a triple sow cow, and it had been giving us uh, problems kind of all season. Uh, we had a shaky throw at the end of the program, 
and the last like minute of the program was just low energy kind of struggling because once you i guess once you know that those things happen it's gotta weigh on you mentally right like i know it's such a quick you know what's a, a regular program two minutes uh the short program's 250 and a long program's 440 okay so like you you go out there you miss a couple of sections by the end of it you're kind of like i don't want to swear but like f like yeah yeah. And that's it. You, you know, can't it's swear like, it's a podcast. No, I can't swear. Because I, gave, I stopped swearing for New Year's resolution. <laughs> that was one of my resolutions. Stop swearing. Um, Eric, I, I did want to ask. And so I know that you're the first openly gay Olympian to win a medal. And if, correct me if I'm wrong. So you came out after the 2014 Olympics. And then you won. You and Megan won 15 and 16 world champions. And then the gold in, in 18. Yes. Do you, crazy. Do you think that coming out and I guess not having to pretend to be someone else in the media helped you achieve and, and go to that next level? Definitely. And, you know, I've been asked that question before of coming out changed. You know, it is, it is a, it's a, it's a great question. And I think it's something that's even when I look at my own career and like how I felt at different stages, it's completely fascinating. Right. Because he, I mean, the, your state of being and how your personal life affects your your, yeah, your work performance. Your, yeah, like these performances that are, I mean, seven minutes of skating at a competition, and that's what decides so much of like other areas life, of my life, like. you know. And after coming out, it literally did feel like I had uh, weight, as like and as it usually does, you know, yeah. like uh, when when you come out or when you reveal something about yourself, you can feel like you have that invisible weight lifted off your shoulders. You feel more comfortable being yourself. It just feels good, you yeah. know. And but it really did translate onto the ice, where and it kind of uh, was timed with a theme of that season. So that 2014-15 season ended up being an undefeated season for Megan and I. That's when we introduced wow. the throw quad, and along with me, just sort of not giving a shit about what people think about my sexuality anymore and kind of being open about it. Megan and I stopped giving a shit about trying to be something that we thought the skating world and the judges wanted us to be. Yeah. And we just found our own style. We did like this muse kind of rock and roll program. And then we ended up having this undefeated season. And another, another interesting thing that happened too, because I, I was scared of how coming out was going to affect the way the judges perceived me and Megan, you know, it's always in pair skating. It's, you're always trying to uh, show different kinds of, or show chemistry. And that's usually romantic chemistry, yeah. you know, it's the most common. And we had to find a way when, and find our own type of chemistry. And, um, you know, after I came out, we were at the Grand Prix final in Barcelona and we ended up winning. And I had a lot of officials and some of the judges come up to me and, just say, you know what? We're really proud of you, and I think it's awesome that wow. you know you you told your story and you came out like that. So, it was so uh, like affirming. Yeah, it, it literally gives me goosebumps hearing you tell a story because it's it's <clears throat> it's such a feel good story. You know, like be true to yourself. You know, don't like. And we were talking about this yesterday. Like, who gives an f what people think about you? You do you. You be the best version of you, and it'll translate to other people, right? Yeah. Like, Oh man, and I can't I'm, even and imagine uh, to carry on to that point. I can't even imagine what it's like because, like, again, like it's different. Well, not even different, but being on the world stage, like you are in front of everything, and uh, even you know you competed in Sochi, Russia, and then Pyeongchang, you Pyeongchang, right? So, like, yeah. you know, I don't know what the culture is like there. In those, I mean, I've been to Pyong uh, South Korea, but you know, Canada's very, very open, like we're very accepting. So, you know, 
putting yourself out there at that time too, in between those two in, in different cultures, different societies, again, leading up to that's got to be very, very stressful, I guess, like to think about that. But then after you do it and you say they come up to you and you know, say, good for you, good for doing that, that's got to be so, like makes you feel even more yeah, proud of what you did because people are supporting your decision, right? Well, I actually have like an, an interesting story. Before the Sochi Games, I was contacted by Glad. And like the, the like the bags? No, oh, no, no. Glad, sorry, glad the, glad the agency. Sorry, the, eight, the uh, LGBT. Yes, I read this. Sorry, and... I thought you meant like a sponsor. No, sorry, that's a, <laughs> it's such an idiot. I read <laughs> this today too. I'm so stupid. Yeah, and um, you know they were they were like you know you could make a big difference if you came out, and especially with all like the anti-LGBT stuff that was yes, happening yes. in in Russia. And I was struggling with it, you know, like I was I was kind of scared, but it kind of felt like okay, like it's for the greater good and yeah, I, yeah. I can make a difference and that makes it worth it. And I remember I was in the car and I, I called my parents and I told them that's what I wanted to do. And my parents have always been supportive of me, you know? And it was the one time where they were just like, we don't think that this is a good idea. They were scared for my safety. Um, and then I, the more I thought about it, the more I kind of realized I had spent my entire life trying to get to the Olympics and I don't want my first Olympics, the story to be about my sexuality, which has nothing to do with, your performance, with my yeah. performance and my athletic ability. And yes, I do understand that, you know, telling my story could be great, but I wanted to do it at the right time where it was going to have the most impact. And I don't think that was it because there are a million stories happening every five minutes at the Olympics. So it could have just been, you know, <clears throat> gone with the wind very quickly. Yeah. But I remember, after my parents initially said that and I kind of decided I wasn't going to, I, I just broke down crying because it made me feel like I had like a, I was, I was, um, I can't think of the word right now. I was, uh, not ashamed, but I was like being weak, you know, that I did, I didn't have the strength to kind of push through that fear for the greater good. Yeah. But I really do looking back, think that it was the right decision. Honestly, that's it's moving and amazing. And I correct me if I'm wrong. I read an article that when I guess one of the reporters asked you who are you here with or who's here supporting you said my family, my friends, and my boyfriend. But they cut out the boyfriend when they released the interview. Is that true? I don't know. Oh, okay. they so. did ask me, and I remember feeling nervous when she asked me that. And I was like, you know what? If she wants to write it, it's fine. And if yeah. not, then it doesn't matter. And so I said it, and it, it felt good. You know, yeah. to just say, and that's how I always, and I hope eventually it, it is for all sports, especially professional sports, the reporter, it doesn't need that, like everybody has to come out and be gay. If they're asked about their private life, they feel comfortable to say, oh, I'm with my, my significant other, I'm with yeah, my yeah, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is. And that's a thing, like you go back to your point, that shouldn't define who you are, right? That just, you know, your sexual orientation doesn't define you. You're, yeah. you're an Olympic athlete competing on the world's biggest stage, like that should be the most important thing, right? It's, exactly. Every time we say that, I'm just like, oh, I wish I could do this. <laughs> Buddy, so when you, have, when you have kids one day, you have to make, make sure one of them is an Olympic athlete, yeah, just train I them. Wish. Um, but then, so that point, after Barcelona, when they all came and said that to you, like, from that point on, was like the support overwhelmingly positive? Were people approaching you and asking you, like, asking for advice? Or just, was it just kind of, I mean, did you became part of like, you know? What I, what I loved is that it really was kind of a non-issue. You know, like when commentators were commentating on us, they wouldn't announce that I was gay or anything. Like it was just normal yeah. afterwards. I got a lot of amazing messages on online, like through Facebook from people I didn't know and young athletes from all over the place just saying, thank you so much for telling your story. Um, 
it's really helped me, you know, accept myself and lots of messages like that, which again, in a totally different way than from when I was standing on the podium that first time, it was just like, wow, this was all worth it. Because when I initially told the story and the article was coming out, I did have like a mini panic attack thinking, oh my God, did I just ruin my life? You know, did I just cut off any opportunity for sponsorships down the line? Is this going to affect my actual skating like competition? I didn't know, you know, you don't know in the moment and at in the in that moment though receiving those messages was just like okay it was where even if it does affect my skating career the fact that it's going to help these people in that way which is what i could have used when i was you know 13 yeah. 14 15 it was worth it if, if you could say something to i guess you can say something to uh, the younger generation about coming out and and you know being true to yourself what would you tell them what's something that you would say to them Rely on your friends, um, you know, be honest with yourself and, and life's too short to try to be somebody that you're not. Yeah. And that's nice. I, yeah. It's I true. got goosebumps right now. <laughs> it's true. You have to, right? Like I, it, it is life's too short to try to you know be fake and try to make other people happy and, and be like the image of other people want you to be in conform and all that stuff. So honestly, that's, <clears throat> that's really impressive and good on you, sir. <clears throat> but that kind of leads me to the next thing, because going back to what I said, well, like, with Sochi, and you touched on that, but even Pyeongchang, like, I'm not going to make an assumption about what the culture like, but, like, Russia, you touched on, like, you know, you were lowered for your safety and all that stuff. How was it then after the Worlds and then going into into Pyeongchang? Because, like, you know. So it, I think that there was the, the, the sort of, I guess, landscape of, like, LGBT athletes. It really changed because I think that in Sochi, there was four out athletes, and then in Pyeongchang, there was, like, ten. Oh, wow. You know, so... It, that's a pretty significant like increase and more than double. Yeah. Two and a half yeah. There was also a pride house at, uh, in oh, Pyeongchang wow. and I don't know. I, I, but even in, in society in general, like that whole climate and awareness was, it, there was a lot of sort of development in those four years, yeah, yeah. I think. And like TV shows with gay <clears throat> characters, like all of that type of stuff. Like there was just a shift in well, the way of that, thinking um, and awareness. That show, Orange is the new black. Um, yeah. What's her name? Modern Family. Yeah, there, there's yeah, a lot yeah. of these major celebrities that. And it moved yeah. probably pretty quickly in that, that four year span. It was like very gradual, I guess, toward the point where you were. And then it just kind of, now it's kind of taken off, I guess, in, in that yeah. time, right? Yeah. So I felt, I mean, it's not even something that I thought about yeah. when I was in Pyeongchang at all. Oh, okay. I felt completely comfortable. Oh. And I do think that there are, there are, there are, um, I, I believe I read like in, uh, a significant amount of the population are like conservative and Christian. So you get some of that like religious, you know, homophobia, yeah. but it never, I never saw it. Never happened. While I was there. Oh, that's pretty good. It's good. Well, now that we're on the topic, winning the gold. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask. Like, well, I'm, that must've I'm been like, the greatest time. Is, I was even going to go back like that during that whole time, that four year gap from when going from like your first silver to all this stuff, two world gold, like two world championship golds. And then, like, an Olympic. What the hell is that like? Like being man. literally the best in the world for that three year span. There's nobody better than you at what you do. No one can come to you and say, "Hey, you could have done this better." You can say, "Hey, I'm the best." I'd like, so, what's that like? So it's really this is super fascinating, like human psychology and another thing where you know the fantasy of it is very different from the reality because I think that you look at a champion in anything and you're just like, they have it figured out, they know that they're the best, and you just soak it up. But I had, after every victory, 
I would feel like that sort of glory and that glow for like 15 to 20 minutes. And I always, not always, but for the most part, I always would get imposter syndrome. Yeah. When and, you feel like people are going to figure you out. And, and like I was like, did I really deserve it? Was I really the best? Did the judges just give it to us because politically, you know, Canada had did everything right. And I started wow, to like, interesting, like, you know what concept, I mean? I would yeah. just almost sabotage my own, like being proud of myself. Yeah. You know, I, I was very quick to, I didn't really let myself feel proud of everything. It was always, I don't know, just a little bit tarnished by that. You're always a bit syndrome. suspicious and you're a bit, yeah, actually yeah. funny. I talked about imposter syndrome recently with a, with a friend of mine, but you're kind of suspicious that like, did, like you said, did I get this? Did I earn this? Is yeah. someone else going to come take care of me now? Like, you know, you look back now and you can see a three-year wind or whatever, sorry, like that span where you won them all. But in the moment, like you're not, you don't know you're going to keep winning. So you got to keep working. And then you're also wondering. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's and crazy. I do remember a sort of breakthrough with that was when we won our second world title in 2016, because when we were going into 2015, it was ours to lose. When we were going into 2016 Worlds, we had started to struggle before. We weren't as consistent. We were undefeated for like 11 competitions, 10 or 11 competitions. Jeez. We lost our first competition that December. And going in, we were kind of under the radar. Like nobody was talking about us to win. The, the reigning Olympic champions were there. And we went out and we had our best skate ever. We had a clean skate. We did a throw quad, side-by-side Lutzes. And I camel remember- back camel. <laughs> I never had to do it again that, that stupid spin but um and that was a time where I was like I'm not gonna let myself feel imposter syndrome because we beat all the people everybody thought were going to beat us yeah and it was kind of like so so when you won that yeah, <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah. but that honestly it's funny you say that it's a lot it happens to not like not just the limits, everybody. That thing you're gonna figure it out. Like, I mean, I've been do, I've been in my career. I was born into it. Like, we, I'm family business, and like, I work there. And even though I know what I'm doing on a daily basis, I always feel like I go into a meeting or a presentation. I'm like, these people are gonna think I'm full of shit. They don't know. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. Then I doubt myself. Yeah. And I, so, like, I mean, obviously, it's still relative, right? It's still the same feeling, the same mindset. But obviously, on the bigger stage too, like, it's it's not weird, but it's like interesting you say that because, like you said, the fantasy aspect of it, we look at you and say you were on top of the sporting world in your field for that that time. But to hear you say that, you know, you always feel like you have to, someone's coming for you or you don't know if you earned it and keep working. That's, mm -hmm. But that's also probably the mindset of like a successful winner athlete. Like you didn't get to the top and get complacent and think that I did this, I'm the best. Yeah. You kept thinking I have to keep working harder, working harder, which is, yeah. you know, that's like pretty impressive. One other kind of big arc to that four years was like we were like on top of the world. Everything was great. And once you, like, it's so, my coach, Paul, he used to say, it's lonely at the top. And he was absolutely right because you have nobody else in front of you and you're just, how do you keep on pushing yourself when you don't have a target? Like, it's so much easier. I think even in running, like chasing somebody rather than having somebody at your back and you're like trying to push yourself faster. Like, it's a lot easier to keep pace with something in front of you. And going into so we went again in 2016 and i just i could feel this sort of shift happen inside of like insecurity and a little bit of a lack of a, a lack of a direction somehow and um 
That also coincided with I herniated the disc in my back just before the World Championships in 2017. Sure. So we went from World Champions to I barely made it through that competition, and we ended up in seventh again. And I, it's I, either I, first or seventh. Eh? That's I know, I know. <laughs> but it's something like part, I, I allowed being a world champion become too much of like my identity, and like uh, let people uh, let myself think that people valued myself for being the world champion, and that if I wasn't, all of that would disappear. And so it began to create this insecurity. Looking back, I understand that. But in the moment, I didn't really understand yeah. that. And so we ended up in seventh, um, like dealing with uh, an injury like that that I didn't know if I was going to be able to come back from was really, really and difficult. And how old were you at this time? Sorry. 2017, I was 31. So that's late for figure skating, correct? Yes. Yeah. Wow. So like at the Olympics, I think I was the second or third oldest in the competition. Like there was only six, wow. six of the skaters are over 30. I think six or seven, but I, uh, one day, I don't know. I, I, when I look back and I describe it as I felt like I was being crushed under the weight of my own life, just like trying to train with the pain. I had to, my biomechanics had changed because of it. And I was uh, having trouble with like the triple Lutz and some of my jumps, the camel, back camel, the back will always have trouble with that. (laughs) And, uh, I ended up having, I guess what you would call like a, like a panic attack, nervous breakdown, which I had never really experienced before. And I ended up going through like a, uh, a period of like mega anxiety and depression, oh, which wow. I had never experienced before. Like I, I've always been somebody who's very in control of my emotions and I was completely out of control and in like the darkest space I had ever been in. And we're heading into an Olympic season and it was just like, how, how, it seemed impossible. Like I just wanted, I could barely leave my, my, my apartment, you know? And I remember, um, because I was always like the type of person with my friends to like give the advice and be like that strong, like rock and have a good perspective on things. It made me feel so strange to have to like reach out to somebody. And I remember the parallels between coming out initially about being gay and then it almost felt like I was coming out again about this sort of mental illness difficulty that I was having. Anyway, I reached out to a friend. It was strange. It wasn't one of my best friends. It was somebody who I, I, I more like of an acquaintance who I know had kind of dealt with that before. And I reached out to him and through eventually talking with my family and talking with my friends, I worked through it, but it took, I'd say, almost two months to get to a state where it was not really intense. And then it took about almost a whole year to get to a point where it was just completely gone. And in, in this strange way, I remember because it kind of, um, it kind of like, uh, numbed my emotions a little bit. It actually made competition a little easier because I didn't, I don't know. It's like my my uh, emotions were just smaller in a way. It's it's difficult to put into yeah. words, but I remember thinking like after the Olympics that it ended up helping me really? out there in that moment because it kept everything a little bit smaller and easier to deal with rather than the usual like big feelings of like nervousness and everything that it means down the road or um, like what the results going to like mean to the future of everything. And it was... Um, 
it was probably the most difficult thing that I've ever gone through, and um, not something that I've really talked about as much. Does it? Well, sorry, I just want to touch on it. Does it? Is it because going back to the thing about like you know you're not defined by one thing, you're not defined as Olympian. So like, is it that because you dealt with this that was also very difficult for you to deal with? Like, is it? You're like okay, like yeah, competing against the world is is super tough and it's important. But it like so is my my mental health and taking care of myself. So like, why is one more important than the other? So they kind of leveled out. Is and that it? It just changed my perspective on what's really important, and that's what I find. And I think that's another thing is like, by the time I got to the very end and I got to the Olympics, it really was a little bit more of going through the motions rather than that that pursuit of the glory. Of you know that vision of it I had in my mind as a kid, it was a little bit more methodical, more like going into a to do a job, yeah. you know, which I think led to the success. And what I find funny, and it's it's kind of just like a movie. It's like that season I went from the lowest point I ever have been at to the highest point, all in one season, you know. And of course I look back and I, I, I look at how it all finished with like those two medals. And I, I'm just, I feel so lucky because not every athlete gets to exit their career wow. on a high note like that. On the high note on their terms and everything. Some people just they go, they go too long and they just keep chasing that thing. I mean, you, I guess you kind of went out on your terms and at the high, at like the high point, right? Yes. And it's, it's, it's interesting you say that too, because I know we mentioned this before when, when you're battling something, you're, you know, whether it's bullying or depression and anxiety, you have that one, I guess, consistency, right? For you, let's say it was skating, you knew that that was your thing and you went out there and no matter what's going on in the outside world, you had that one consistent thing that you knew you were good at and you knew you could come in and nothing else mattered while you were doing that. Like, I think it's amazing and, you know, yeah. finishing your, your, I guess, your major competitive career with two Olympic gold medals of gold and a bronze is one hell of a storybook kind of ending, it, right? It really was. Yeah. Now I have to describe to you how it was to go and get that medal, the okay. gold medal, because I think up until I got married, actually, that was probably the most amazing moment of my entire life. And it was another one that the silver medal was really amazing. But when we walked out to get our gold medal, I mean, there is a bit more prestige to the individual event, you know, because you did it on your own. Some people in the skating world, they don't they don't value the team gold as much. But the experience of going and getting that with like my friends, some of yeah. my best friends, Patrick, Tessa, Scott, Caitlin Osman, Megan, you know, it's I remember walking out there. And thinking, like, what am I going to do when I go onto the podium? Like, am I going to cry? Am I going <laughs> to laugh? Like, what's going to happen? And I just put all of my energy into just being in the moment because it goes by like that. Yeah. You know? And I remember, I don't think I've ever smiled so hard in my entire life. And my family was at the very front, my brother, uh, my husband, my parents. And we were up there and we just belted out the Oh Canada. And I did. I, like, teared up. And it was... You, you almost feel like you're not in reality anymore. You, I'm you feel living like this moment right now. Like, <laughs> I'm fully in it. <laughs> Dude, you look like you're going to cry yeah, right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, you feel like you're, it's like being in a movie. It's yeah. like you're, it's almost like you can't tell if it's real or not because you've imagined the moment so many times. 
And then it's back to reality because yeah. we had our individual <laughs> event. <laughs> but in that moment, in those minutes that you're up there, like, does it, it feel like, like almost like so much joy that like it's nothing? It's like euphoric. It's like it is. Yeah. It's like you. It's like euphoria. Yeah. It's like you don't really have any. I couldn't tell you what I was thinking. It was just like pure, like like everything's perfect. In that moment. positivity and light and like for a moment, you know, like it's Jesus. Yeah, it's wild. That's honestly that is. I don't even. I don't have to say I, like yeah, that is crazy I'm, and. I was in a little state there. I was just picturing myself walking on that platform, winning that or the podium, winning the the medal. But I, I know we got to wrap it up here soon. I, I wanted to ask, what, what's next for you? I, I know you said Stars on Ice. Yeah, so uh, Stars on Ice is coming up. I'm preparing with Megan right now for that. Um, we'll be doing the Japan tour and the North America tour. Uh, the World Championships are coming up in Montreal, which I'll be kind of working at as part of the ISU and also with Skate Canada. Uh, I'm composing the music uh, for the opening ceremonies of that. I've started to work on an album of my music, oh, wow. which uh, I've had more time in general just to like pursue my music and explore that. And I, I needed to have some sort of a, a target with it. So I wanted to start with like an album and see what goes from there. Um, I wrote the music for... Uh, a friend, uh, a friend's documentary. His name's Randy Gardner. They were uh, Ty Babylonia, Randy Gardner were world champions in the '70s, and, um, and he's now a good friend of mine. And he asked me if I would compose music for that. Wow. So that was a really cool project. Um, I've got to perform solo in some shows over Christmas, which was a really amazing experience because I haven't done that in a long time. I've been choreographing a little bit more, something that I want to do more of. Uh, I started coaching. Uh, with my old coach Richard um, and he coaches some of the highest level like competitive kids in the country which has been uh, amazing as well uh, is, it seems I, like you're busier now yeah, than when you were an Olympian like, it's, 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 it's true it's true Jeez. I have way more emails to answer now than I <laughs> yeah, did yeah, when yeah. I was an athlete but I, and, I, and again you know as I go through all of it I, I'm very I, am, I feel very lucky and I just have been trying to like uh, appreciate each day I take a deep breath every day and I just try to like appreciate my life because you know I, we Megan and I have built we built an amazing wave at the Olympics and I've had so much opportunity riding that wave and I know that that will eventually fade and you know I'm trying to set some things so that when that wave is you know over and gone that I have like that new goal and that new direction and it's it's life life is good you yeah know, it really is right now so there's not like that's the thing too because you know one of the things again like we always talk about between our, us is like you know you can never really dwell on the past and look back and say you know and you always look back and reflect on the good old days but it's not like you should never become completely oh you know I wish I was still there because you should always keep striving forward moving forward because at the end of the day like you have to set new chapters new goals in life and all that so I mean it seems like like I said it seems like you're doing more now than you did before and that's honestly good for you it's good yeah. when we got off the ice. Um, before our final long program, our final comp like competition performance, I remember walking backstage. We skated second. The Germans were skating, and I looked around and I did a little check in with myself. And I'm like, "Am I gonna miss this? The feeling of pure dread, like you're gonna die, like you're so nervous." <laughs> and I was like, "Nope, nope, that's it. I'm done." <laughs> so you know, when I look back at my career, it's like the book was complete. I've closed it, and I love it. And it's you know, it, it's on, there. On to the so. Next one. 
Yeah, it feels nice to kind of look back and feel perfectly complete with my career. Amazing. That's awesome. Amazing. So I, I know we did ask this question in the middle. What's one piece of advice you'd get? But I guess if you look back to like your, you know, your your 20s or kind of thing, if you could give one piece of advice to someone who's trying out for the Olympics or someone and anything in general, what's one thing you'd give or even you'd give to yourself back then? Like one thing to keep people going, to keep people motivated, to keep them on the right track. I feel like, you know, you kind of get a sense of it like when you're a teenager and like, oh, I wish I was an adult so that I could be in control of my own life and everything. And when I look back at my 20s, I think I, I would have been a little less hard on myself and I would have stopped trying to figure everything out and just appreciate what was happening. You know, like you're so focused on the destination. And I think, you know, it, it's been said a million times, like learning to enjoy the journey. It wasn't something that I was really aware of. I was really just focused so much on a destination and, and it's a great destination. Like the Olympics is a great goal to have, but I think that, you know, in your twenties, as you're going through university, you're finding your direction, you're finding your passions, you're figuring out so much, like take a deep breath, look around you, you know, appreciate your friends and what you have in your family. And then, just enjoy those moments you have as you're making your way and you're figuring it all out. Oh, I see that's awesome. some great advice. Yeah. Um, I guess to wrap it up, if people want to learn more about you, connect with you, reach out to you, what's the best way uh, to find you? Um, on Facebook or on Instagram. I'm at Eric Radford 85 or on Twitter. And I, I honestly, I love talking with fans or not fans or people who have questions about, anything you know that yeah. i went through what it was like on the podium or what it was like when i was in complete despair and i didn't know how <laughs> i was going to move forward yeah. like i really like you know if i can help somebody by telling my story then you know i, I love it and i i want i want to do that oh honestly eric like if if we weren't like tight i know you got to get somewhere but i feel like we got to talk for like another hour <laughs> honestly this was a lot of fun and really appreciate you coming on and you know being so open and, and talking to us i mean like amazing story yeah. like congrats for everything you've accomplished and obviously everything you're working towards keep doing it and uh yeah thanks for coming yeah, on we really yeah. appreciate it. i'm so glad you responded to our message like <laughs> we were we were just throwing a, a hail mary out there and i'm glad uh i'm glad you can come on share some insight because uh, i think this episode specifically is going to help a lot of people yeah and this has been super cool thank you so much for having me awesome right. thanks sign right. off thanks take pals care. thanks pals take care you like to drink and to smoke to take away the pain And I don't remember all of my mistakes in every eye